Also, thank you all for the, uh, the, the emphasis on missions that we've heard this morning. <laughs> it's a great lead into what I'd like to talk to us about today from God's Word. The word missions conjures up a, a variety of, of different things among believers. But one thing is for sure, with six or seven billion people on our planet, the task of reaching all of those who do not know Jesus Christ can be a little intimidating, and uh, it can leave us maybe even speechless, although we're encouraged from God's word that that's exactly what we're not to be, is speechless. But God only expects that we do the same thing that he asked of Saul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, and that is to say yes, when the Spirit directs us where to go and what to do for the sake of Christ. If you look at church history, you'll see there have been a a number of of famous prayer meetings. For example, uh, Hernhut Saxony, in the year 1727, became known as the Moravian Prayer Meeting. It lasted for a hundred years. Now, I'm not going to keep you more than about 45 minutes here today. (laughs) But this prayer meeting lasted for a hundred years. And during the first 25 years of that prayer meeting, the Lord called out more than 100 missionaries to serve around the world. By the 65th year, that number had swelled to over 300. 300 missionaries carrying the gospel. New York City, September 1857, another famous prayer meeting called the Noonday Prayer Meeting, started by Jeremiah Lampier. And it started in the lecture room of the old Dutch church on Fulton Street, for those of you who are familiar with New York. It ignited a widespread revival, again, that went on for years and years. And in another prayer meeting, diverse groups like the Baptists, the Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and United Church of Christ all trace their involvement in foreign missions back to an unlikely movement that began with five Williams College students in Williamstown, Massachusetts. That group gathered in a field for a twice-weekly prayer meeting. On the third Saturday of August in 1806 is their first. That prayer meeting became known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting. And it seems like every revival in history started with prayer, particularly in a prayer meeting. But few of those can rival a prayer meeting that happened in Antioch, in 46 or 47 A.D., five men met that day to pray. That prayer meeting birthed the world missions movement, as described here in Acts chapter 13. A watershed chapter, by the way, in the book of Acts and in church history. In this chapter, the emphasis in the book of Acts shifts. It moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. It moves from Peter to Saul, as we've discussed what happened. From ministry to the Jews to ministry to the Gentiles. From Palestine to the Mediterranean region as a whole. From home missions to world missions. And then as we see, from Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. 
Excuse me. What I want us to start at looking at this morning is the fact that these men were godly men. Acts 13, verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Godly men. Leadership, stability, and teaching in the church at Antioch was provided by prophets and teachers. And of the five that are mentioned here by Luke, four were Hellenists, that is, Jews that were born outside the Holy Land, and they spoke Greek. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Simeon was from Africa. Lucius was a Cyrenian. Saul was from Tarsus, what is now Turkey. Only Manan was from Israel. But not only were the godly men involved here, there was godly management of the church. The next two verses gives us five characteristics of these godly men who were leading the church in Antioch. And the first characteristic is that they were servants. They were serving men. Verses 2 and 3 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, in my English Standard Version, it says, while they were worshiping. If you have a New King James, you'll see it's translated, as they ministered. But the word there is liturgia, where we get our word liturgy. And it refers to a pattern of priestly or public service for the Lord. These men consistently gave themselves to spiritual leadership. Like as the apostles described in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were devoted to ministry. An important note here is that while their ministry was directed to the church, it was ultimately directed to the Lord. The second characteristic we see here is they were seekers. They were seeking men. In our world today, it seems like spiritual fasting is something of a a lost discipline, a forgotten discipline. But it was common in the early church. And these five leaders fasted in order to hear the voice of the Lord and his directions for the church. All through scripture, fasting was a discipline that was associated with a need to hear from God. Thirdly, we see that they were also... (coughs) Excuse me. They were also sensitive men. What these men heard was the Holy Spirit calling Barnabas and and Saul out separately for a special work. And clearly they were already serving the Lord. But God had singled them out for something new, something different. Taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Have you ever noticed that when God asks people to do something, it's usually not people who are not doing anything. (laughs) He calls people who are doing something to do something more. And he often calls them to something a little bit more important, a little more urgent, more sacrificial, kind of like battlefield promotions, if you will. 
And I think Christians today need to learn some lessons from the bloom where you are planted idea. We can discuss spiritual gifts in the church until the cows come home. But the most important gift is the gift of availability. Now, I said from the, till the cows come home. I'm sorry, that's something from Indiana. I don't know if you all understand that out here. I had to go to Ukraine to find out what it meant about the cows coming home. We'd go out in some of these distant rural churches, and we'd start our program and our music and our preaching, and all of a sudden people would get up and leave, and they'd go outside because the shepherd of the village was bringing the cows and the sheep and stuff back home down the middle of this village. And they had to go make sure they all get back where they belong, and then they'd come back to church. So we got to the point we didn't start until the cows came home. <laughs> the fourth characteristic here is these guys were serious. Interestingly, after receiving the word from God to set Saul and Barnabas apart to go to the Gentiles, these, la- these leaders fasted and prayed again. Not out of questioning God, but it was an act of confirmation to make sure that they had heard the Lord correctly about what they were supposed to do. It was an act of obedience by servants who wanted to confirm their master's instructions. And then finally, our fifth characteristic was that they were selfless. After they were sure that God's instruction was what they thought they had heard, they acted with selflessness. Saul and Barnabas were willing to leave the security and the comfort, if you will, and the safety of being in their little church in Antioch. And the other three were willing to let their friends go. Sometimes it's not easy, is it, to let friends go? I know Tom said something about ripping his heart out, seeing Dottie and Hillary leaving here. But it's hard sometimes to see friends go, to see our family go. Elizabeth probably got all kinds of things on her prayer list for the next few weeks. But it's a, it's a selfless thing for us to prepare ourselves and then not just to be the ones that are going, but to let our friends and those that we love go. Not only let them go, but send them out. Verse 3 here tells us, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And the word here literally means it just released them. It's a similar word they use for divorce them. <laughs> kind of severing those emotional ties and allowing them to go off and do what God has called them to do. They selflessly broke those ties and sent them off to do God's will. Barnabas and Saul became the first two missionaries then of the Christian church. Now it's interesting that God chose the two best prepared men in the church to leave and carry out his gospel to the world. Listen to the way another writer uh, characterizes it here. It says, They were men who had proved themselves to be leaders in the local church at Antioch by steady application of the work of God in that church and city. They had pastored that church, shepherding the flock, following up converts, visiting the sick, helping the widows and orphans, ministering solace to the bereaved. They were gracious in their manner, gifted in the word, glorious in their achievements. They were the two best men the Antioch church had. Are we sending our two best ladies out? (laughs) I'm, I'm here to say I think so. 
Some people get the impression that the church sends out those who haven't been able to find anything to do here. Yeah, you, may, forgive me, teachers, but have you ever heard the despair? I have, to me, it's disparaging phrase that them that can do, them that can't teach. Well, that's the same kind of attitude it's talking about here. People think that you send out missionaries, you send out the people who can't really fit in and do anything here. Well, that's not the case at all. It's not even close to accurate. These people are called by God. Talk to some of our missionaries when they come home. We, we do that regularly. It's, it's an exciting thing for me to see that this church has that missions moment every Sunday. Just to talk about those who are off doing this work away from the comfort of home and the security of home. Some of them in some places that are pretty darn uncomfortable and pretty darn insecure. And they're out there doing it. And yet this body, fortunately, remembers them, recognizes them, and keeps them upheld in prayer. Said These are folks that are set aside for a specific purpose. Some of God's best called to take his gospel to the rest of the world. So that's what I'm going to spend the rest of the time here talking about. And that is the, the godly mission of the church. Saul and Barnabas were obedient to the Lord's call. That resulted in opportunity for ministry. And the ministry, of course, resulted in opposition to the ministry. We'll see that. First, let's look at their obedience. Acts chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Saul and Barnabas sailed off in the port of Seleucia to the island of Cyprus, and they took John Mark with them as their assistant. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Cyprus was Barnabas' home. So I can imagine he was probably pretty excited to be going back to his hometown to preach the gospel of Jesus to the people that he knew. Now, Cyprus was 60 miles off the coast of Seleucia. It was the third largest island in the Mediterranean, and it was the center of worship of Zeus for the Romans, or the Greeks. And because of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, there were already Christians present on Cyprus. Remember Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. It said, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So we see here now that Saul and Barnabas have been obedient, and now they find themselves with opportunity. Verse 5, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. There are two main cities on the island of Cyprus. Salamis, the commercial center, on the eastern side of the island, and on the western side of the island was Paphos, the political center. They got to Salamis first, and it says they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Paul's clear strategy throughout the book of Acts was when he got to a new city, he would first go to the local Jewish synagogue. Since he was already a Jewish scholar, recognized scholar, they would allow him 
to preach to the people, to speak to the people who knew the scriptures. So it was a perfect way for him to begin a new ministry in a new area. But then we see Saul and Barnabas also experienced opposition. Verses 6 to 12. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the mag- magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, first time, by the way, he's recognized as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Trouble in the form of opposition started for Saul and Barnabas and John Mark as soon as they got into Paphos. First, first of all, they encountered a, a pagan city. And when the team arrived in Paphos, they probably, I, I'm sure, encountered a, a city that, that lived up to its historical description. Every woman in the city was required to offer herself for sexual favors on the steps of the temple to Aphrodite, also known as Venus. The money earned had to be offered to the goddess as an act of worship, typical for a pagan worship at that time. Secondly, they encountered a political charlatan. Now, we may not have any idea what that is, right? Okay. Merriam-Webster defines it as a person who falsely pretends to know or be something in order to deceive people. Just saying. (laughs) Anyway, the charlatan was a man named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. He was a Jew who was a sorcerer and a false prophet. And maybe he was trying to take advantage of the, the name of Jesus because of the growing influence of the church. We don't know. But he also called himself Elimus, which means the enlightened one. It sounds like a political charlatan to me. And was, he was an aide to the Roman governor of the city, Sergius Paulus. <laughs> I have to tell you, I kind of like that name. <laughs> Stevenus Brownus. <laughs> oh, well. They met this prominent citizen, the city's Roman governor, and he wanted to talk to Paul and Barnabas. He wanted to hear what they were teaching, to hear the word of God. And this wasn't particularly unusual. It was a governor's job to kind of keep up with uh, all the latest news in in the region that he was supposed to govern, as much as anything else just for the intellectual exercise. And then fourthly, they encountered a passionate conflict. When this, when this aide 
learned that the governor, Governor Paulus, wanted to hear Barnabas and Saul's message, he vigorously opposed the idea. He could see the threat that God's word was to his ministry of deception and, and false power. And he didn't want the governor to be converted to Christianity. He would lose his position of power in the city if that happened. Then fifth, there was a powerful confrontation. And I think it would be worthwhile to quote Paul's rebuke. This is a powerful rebuke of this sorcerer. Maybe the most dramatic repudiation of demonic power in Scripture. Verses 10 and 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul didn't mince any words with this guy. You son of the devil. And I'm sure he didn't, that wasn't an accident. He's playing on the fact this guy says his name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. And he wants to make sure that everybody understands he's the son of the devil. Paul more accurately described this guy as the son of the devil, meaning an enemy of righteousness. He was the opponent of everything that Barnabas and, and Saul stood for. Now, besides just calling him out for who he was, Paul caused him to be temporary blind, temporarily blinded. And that's a pretty fitting picture of his spiritual blindness, one that Saul was somewhat familiar with, wasn't he? This formerly all-powerful politician now was reduced to seeking someone to lead him around town. Somewhat of a humiliating situation. Brought on by a first-century power encounter between God and the devil. And we know who wins those confrontations. Sixth and finally, they experienced a personal conversion. The very thing that the sorcerer feared happened. The governor witnessed the power of God and believed the gospel. Verse 12 tells us the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In all the tricks and the false power of the sorcerer, uh, all that he may have done, the governor had never seen anything that matched up to the power that he witnessed from God. And he immediately put his faith then in Christ. A Roman governor. The first convert of Saul and Barnabas' missionary journey mentioned in Scripture. Well, so what? The first missionaries are out there doing their thing. So what? <clears throat> I want to talk to us about this godly movement we call missions. <clears throat> you know, I have to tell you, um, I think it's interesting that we call taking the gospel out to the community and to the world, we call it missions. It's kind of like it's named like a program. But folks, missions is not a program of the church. It is the mission of the church. It's what we're to do. It's why we're here. Take the gospel to those who have never heard it. 
There are four observations about what we now call missions, about what Paul and Barnabas knew as taking the gospel to the ends of the earth that I want us to look at as we close. The first thing is that the first observation is that it's not programs, it's people. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark didn't leave Antioch with the blessings or the financial support of some, of the, some missions board someplace or as part of some missions program. They were just people sent out by other people with the gospel to take to other people who didn't have the gospel. Three of them, one of whom later drops out, set out to reach the world for Christ. And that is the heart of missions. Missions isn't about the programs. It's about people. Just as the church is not about buildings or programs, it's about people. We have to remember that it's also people that are called by God to the mission field. Now, if you have never felt called by God to something, I'm telling you, you've got to keep your eyes open because it's an incredible thing. And oftentimes it will take you by complete surprise. But we have to remember that God calls people to the mission field. Programs, organizations can be of great help. Don't, don't get me wrong. But only if a God-called person is willing to go will those programs and organizations have any success at all. It has to be a God-called person or persons. Second observation is, is with progress, it will bring problems. <laughs> there are still some people, believe it or not, some Christians even, who believe that as long as you're following God's will, seeking to be in God's will, or you actually are in God's will, as long as you're there, everything's going to be smooth sailing. Well, that's never been my experience. <laughs> and I believe the scriptures tell us the exact opposite. Do they not? Expect to be challenged by the enemy. Expect problems to be brought, obstacles to be brought. When you're in God's will doing God's work, you're surely going to find opposition from the evil one. In his book, The Church of Fire, pastor and author R. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, there is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you'll never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because a movie or play is offensive, and you'll never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business, and you will not lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy, and you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus. You will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But, of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. 
That sounds a little bit like it might fit in with the message we heard a couple weeks ago on the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, if you pray, be ready to go. This observation is probably very plain. Don't pray for God to reach the world unless you're willing to be involved yourself. And especially, be ready to go. For my first 25, 27 years as a believer, I deliberately avoided anything having to do with missions. I had a pastor friend of mine in in Fresno that had been after me for a long time to go to the Philippines with him. And I kept telling him, absolutely not. (laughs) There's nothing I want to see in the Philippines. I know that the people there are poor, etc., etc., but there's just... There's just nothing there that interests. If you ever go to Russia, let me know. Well, I never did make that trip with Jim, although I did finally say yes. He pulled a sneaky on me, went through a back door and got a hold of me, and I said yes, but I never had to make the trip to the Philippines. Instead, God sent me to Ukraine. Once I finally said yes, he said, okay, now we can do business. He sent me to Ukraine and Russia, not once, not twice, 26 times, for at least two weeks at a time, sometimes three. And yes, those became pretty long weeks sometimes, but I cannot tell you the fulfillment in your heart for doing what God calls you to do when you finally say yes. Now, I didn't have a problem with praying for missionaries. But if you're going to do it, (laughs) you better be ready. He might call you to go. Or he might call you to help somebody else go. But if you're going to pray for it, be ready to be involved. Be ready to obey when he does give you that call. Fourthly, if you keep it in perspective, then you're going to prosper. With the scope of the task of reaching the number of lost in our world, it, it can be easy to be discouraged. It was interesting to go to even Ukraine, where, by the way, we thought the word of God was, was absent, and it was not. Even through 70 years of oppression from the Soviets and communism and atheism, the church was still alive and well. It was just underground. But when you look at the number of people around the world who do not know, even looking around the people in our community, in our nation, who don't know the Lord, it can look like a discouraging monster to try to meet that goal. But if every Christian will just focus on their own opportunities, our perspective to that can change. Barnabas and Paul set out to reach the world. God got them started on a little island. That's all God expects of us. Start where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Start bearing some fruit. Seek his voice and direction. And then obey it. I like to quote St. Francis of Assisi here who said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Folks, 
There are so many ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the best ways is just love them. <laughs> love them in the name of Jesus. And if you have to use words, eh, you can do that too. Now, I don't know exactly what Dottie and, and Hillary are going to be doing over in Bangladesh. I think you're going to be working at a hospital over there. <laughs> you're going to be loving them. That's essentially what they're doing. And that by itself gives so many opportunities. So many opportunities. But you know what? You'll have opportunities when you walk out of here today. Almost every one of you will have some kind of an opportunity to tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ all about him, all about his salvation today. Obey that call. That's what we're about as a church. This church has a history, as far as I can tell, of being missions-minded. That missions moment that we share every Sunday, that's an important one. It kind of tells you where the heart is. And that is a heart is for the lost. And a church has to have a heart for the lost. Or it's a dying church. That's our starting point. Not in Cyprus. <laughs> our starting point's right here in Cambria. But our reach is at least a Bangladesh. It's all over the world. Santiago, is that where the Mercies were serving? Yeah. Let me just encourage us fervently to seek God's voice and his direction. I know our missions committee people do that. We all need to be involved. Praying is where we start. <laughs> and if you're going to pray, be prepared to be involved. We have to be prepared to be selfless like those believers in Antioch were. Selfless enough to go, or self, selfless enough to help send. Is, is Judy in here? Is that Judy's daughter that I just saw a picture in Ukraine? Granddaughter. Granddaughter. Folks, preparing our young people to go, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, it's great to see somebody in their 50s or 60s go off to another nation to just preach the gospel, but... It's really exciting to see somebody in their 20s or 30s or 40s going off to do the same thing, even if it's just for a, a short-term mission. You know, a short-term mission is a mission. You don't necessarily have to go and live someplace to carry the gospel with you. You just take it. Be who you're supposed to be. And if necessary, use words. Probably be the long, wrong language anyway. So... <laughs> By the power of the Spirit, I pray that God gives all of us his heart and his perspective on missions, not as a program, but as our mission as a church. Would you pray with me? Lord, you went to, uh, well, you went to a lot of care to prepare for us your word the Bible, to help us gather it, to, the inspired men to write it, other men and women to interpret it, to translate it, 
to get it into the hands of people. Lord, that by itself is a, is a mission needs to be carried out because there are people who still don't have your written word in their language. But Lord, you've called us all to some kind of mission, whether it's to speak to our kids or speak to our parents or our grandparents or to our neighbors or people we work with or people we just run into in the grocery store or maybe to go to Bangladesh or maybe to go to Ukraine or Santiago or all the ends of the earth Lord, I think you've called every person in this room to be in missions, whether it's a goer or a sender or a prayer, just lifting them up in prayer. Help us all to be involved, to be responsive and obedient to your word, to your call, in Jesus' name. Amen.